Well, good morning, church. Oh, my gosh. Y'all going to be like that today, huh? Good morning, church. Hey, uh, that's a lot better. Hey, uh, Romans chapter 8. That's where it will be this morning. Uh, Romans chapter 8. I do need to apologize if I cough into the mic aggressively today. I have been fighting off some pneumonia all week this week. And so you pray for me and I won't cough on you. Deal? All right, good. Romans chapter 8, continuing on in our church series this week. I've mentioned before um, that when I was in the latter part of my high school years and first part of my college years, I worked for a recreation complex that our church owned, several baseball fields, soccer fields, um, the whole nine yards, and it was called Buckhead Creek. And uh, as I started there as a junior in high school, just before the summer between my junior and senior year, I was just dead set on wanting to make sure I did everything right. I was ambitious. Uh, I just knew I was going to kill it in this new job. And so about a week before summer started, one of my jobs was to get the shop ready for the summer season. The summer season is a very busy, very um, just crazy, um, busy time and a a lot of things going on. And so uh, my first week or so, I was in the shop and I was told, hey, you need to get the lawnmowers ready to go, you need to make sure the weed eaters are strung upright and make sure the, the ball field stripers are all chalked in and ready to go. And, um, and so I, I did my checklist and best that a junior in high school could. And uh, I got to the point where I was ready to, you know, to be done. And I thought, you know what, I'll just fill up the, the vehicles with gas. That way we start fresh the very next week. On Monday, we come in, everything's gassed up, ready to go. And so I did all of that, and I, I got into one of the vehicles to, to drive over to the office to let my boss Shannon know that I was done. And I started the vehicle up, and it ran for about 10 seconds, and then it sputtered out. And I was like, this is weird. And so I, I started it up again. I pulled the choke a little bit and got it running again, and then it, it sputtered out. And here I am as a junior in high school just trying not to break anything and I uh, don't want to call my boss on my first week on the job and have to have him come help me. And so I started again. It still doesn't run very smoothly, and then it putters out. And so uh, I eventually called Shannon and said, hey, I can't get the mule started. And uh, so he drove down there, and he, I had to walk him step by step through what I had done and everything that I had done to make sure the tires were good, all that stuff. And I said, then I put the, the gas from over there in there, and he said, you put which gas? like the, the gas that's in the gas cans right there. And he was like, grab that gas can. He said, flip it over. And I was like, it's empty, I'll flip it over. He said, you see that letter D on the bottom of the can? D stands for diesel, Graham. He said, that vehicle doesn't run on diesel. So he walked over to the shelf and uh, grabbed what looked like a small water hose and said, Graham, you ever tasted diesel before? <clears throat> And he asked me, he said, you started it up? And I said, yeah, and I didn't even think to check the fuel because it started up okay. And I'll never forget he said this. He said, yeah, it'll start up, but it won't run on that for long. When we think about the idea of church, it's important for us to consider what it is that is the fuel that runs our engine. What it is that keeps us moving, what it is that sustains us, what runs this place. And the best way to understand that is to remember what we talked about last week, which is that the church is really comprised of a bunch of individuals. The institution is really just a collection of individuals. And so it stands to reason the same answer 
What, what does the church run on is the same answer. What, is the, what does the follower of Jesus run on? What's in the engine? What kind of fuel are we designed to run on? Romans chapter 8, a very familiar passage for some, one of my favorites. It's a deep passage in some spots, but one of my favorites, the Apostle Paul again goes right at the heart of this issue, speaks to this idea of what we are depending on for our strength. Romans chapter 8 verse 5 says this, he says, for those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit have their minds set on the things of the spirit. Let me stop you there. It sounds easy enough, right? It's fairly simple. If you're living your life according to something, it stands to reason your mind will be focused on that thing. If I base my life on my job, my mind will be focused on my job. If I, if I base my life, center my life on my family, then my mind will be focused on my family. If I base my life on Tennessee sports teams, my mind will be a desperate and wicked place. <laughs> Paul's very simply saying this, whatever owns your heart will take its residence in your mind. Whatever's on the throne of your heart will take its residence It'll rent the rooms of your mind. Verse six, here's where it gets a little bit tricky. He says, now the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Verse eight, very simply, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Sometimes I wish Paul would be more direct He leaves very little up for interpretation, right? I want you to consider for a moment, I know I make light of it, but I I want you to consider the weight of these words. Simple as they are, the the gravity that if if this is true, what does that actually mean? The, The mindset of the flesh is death. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God. The mindset of the flesh is unable to submit to God and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. He goes on in verse number nine and says, you, however, meaning the people of the church of Rome, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit if, and it's a big if, indeed the spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And now if Christ is in you, The body is dead because of sin, but the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And then in verse 11, he says, and here's here's the, the central focus. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, the same spirit, the same power lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. So Paul draws a line in the sand here. He, he creates a very strong and potent distinction between this life of flesh and this life of spirit. And he says very simply, the flesh brings death. The spirit gives life. The flesh leads to separation from God. The spirit brings communion with God. The flesh produces hostility. The spirit produces righteousness. And when we read it that simply, when we, when we see it on paper, If you're anything like me, you ask the question, why in the world would anybody want to choose to live by the flesh? 
Right, like if, if, if all this stuff is true, if it brings death, it brings hostility, it brings separation, it doesn't please God, how in the world, when you see the choices on the shelf, how in the world would you go that way? Why would anyone choose to fill up on the flesh, to run their engines on that sort of a fuel source? And yet, it's this battle that we find ourselves in constantly. On paper, it makes a lot of sense, but when the rubber meets the road, when life happens, it's not so simple anymore. And there's this tension that rises up in us of knowing the difference and knowing what is right, but still choosing this way. The Apostle Paul knows himself, knows this feeling. In the chapter before this one in Romans Chapter 7, Paul very famously says the words in verse 15, for I do not understand what I am doing. Anybody ever been there before? For I do not understand what I am doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Verse 18, he says, for I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. And here's the word. He says, for the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. It can sound like group therapy for Paul for a moment, right? This section of the letter to the Romans, this is Romans 7 and then back it in with Romans 8 of this, I, I don't even know what I'm doing sometimes. I know, what it's, I know what's right. I, I know what's, what's godly. I know what's of the spirit and yet I can't control it. I, 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 what does he say? He says, for the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. It might sound as if Paul is just kind of airing out his own grievances here, that this is just, you know, some sort of a, a therapy hour for him. But it's so much more than that. Because what Paul is doing in Romans 7 and then teeing it up for Romans 8 is really laying the groundwork for what is a beautiful and masterful argument. He continues on in verse 12 of Romans chapter 8, and he says this, So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh but if you live according to the flesh you're going to die but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live I love the language that Paul uses it says brothers sisters we are not obligated to the flesh not obligated to it you owe it nothing uh, after I uh, worked at the, the ball fields for a while, I, I switched over and began to intern in student ministry, um, which is what got me into this mess. And so um, I interned in student ministry for a number of years in my home church. And uh, our church back in Memphis, those of you here last week heard me share the, uh, the stories of the sweet saints. I've got one that wasn't a sweet saint I want to tell you about today. Uh, I'm just kidding. Her name was Miss Paula. Um, and Miss Paula was the kind of woman uh, that maybe you've been around these people before that were just deeply concerned that you needed to know everything they thought about everything. Right, their opinion on every matter, their input on every situation, whether it directly impacted them or not. We don't have any Miss Paulas at Clearview. <clears throat> Y'all okay? We don't have any Miss Paulas at Clearview. That's why I'm having to tell you about Miss Paula back in Memphis. And there was, sometimes Miss Paula would offer an insight or an opinion that was helpful 
there was a good point or maybe something we weren't, what we weren't seeing or, or whatever, but there were other times where Miss Paula would offer a piece of her mind that definitively crossed the line. And there's a moment, I remember when I was an intern, where a student approached me on a Wednesday night and said, hey, do you know Miss Paula? And I said, is there a mustache in Mexico? <laughs> I said, I know Miss Paula. And she, this, this student, she said, uh, well, Miss Paula said something about Stephen, who was my boss tonight, that I'd, a group of us heard her say, and it just didn't feel good to me. I said, well, what'd she say? And, and then she, she told me what Miss Paula said, and I told Stephen, I said, hey, I know Miss Paula has a lot to say sometimes, but this felt like she's maybe stirred something up that she may not realize. And so Stephen called Miss Paula and said, hey, would you come meet with me? I, I obviously understand you're frustrated about something, and uh, I want to hear what's going on. And so he, he has the intern sit in the room with him because the intern's the one that took the, the, uh, the information. And I'll never forget, he, he opened the conversation and he said, Ms. Paula, I understand you've got a lot on your mind and um, you, you, you even shared some of that with some folks here and I wanna hear what's going on. So she began to, to, to share a lot of the same things that she shared uh, to the student, uh, in front of the students. And then the, Ms. Paula, Ms. Stephen said, well, Ms. Paula, here's what I also heard you said. And she, he repeated what what she said to these students. And I'll never forget Miss Paula looked down at herself and then looked up at me and then at, Ms., at Stephen and, he, and she said, I hate when the devil makes me do that stuff. <laughs> that dang devil got me again. The, the, the reality is Miss Paula needed to understand the words of Paul. That we are not obligated to the flesh. The devil doesn't make you do anything. There is no obligation. You owe him nothing. You owe the flesh nothing. In fact, Paul's major point here is that you have another option. You have another choice. You choose who you listen to. You choose the fuel that you run on. We are not obligated to the flesh. We have other options, meaning righteousness is a choice. Purity, holiness is a choice. The abundant life that Jesus offers is a choice. But nobody bumps into righteousness. Purity, holiness of mind, doesn't happen by accident. And the abundant life is not accidentally accessed. We don't just stumble upon it and go, oh, look what I found. What do we do? We, we fight for it. A uh, pastor, uh, mentor of mine named Ken Witten said it this way, we fight hell by the acre. You just take ground as you can. We fight hell by the acre. So the question on the table for us this morning is how do we fight that fight? What, what fuels that fight? If we hear and maybe even identify with the words of the Apostle Paul, I know in my mind what is right. I, I have the desire to do what is right, but I lack the ability in this walk of life, this tension between spirit and flesh. If, if, if we understand and maybe even resonate with that, then what do we do? There are three words tucked right in the dead middle of this final verse that I think are maybe the most important words in the whole chapter. Let's read it again, verse 13. It says, but if... By the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body you live. To reword it, Paul would say, you'll put to death the deeds of the body and you will find life only by the Spirit. So this morning, can I speak to the person who 
feels defeated. Can I speak to the person who feels ashamed? Maybe no one within earshot of me would actually publicly say it. But you've been in this fight, this battle. Maybe it's some sort of struggle in your personal walk with the Lord. Maybe it's a struggle with sin. Maybe there's some sort of a a spirit of addiction in you. Maybe there's some sort of a fight that you just can't seem to shake. Maybe for you, you're the person who is exhausted by the battle. You're weary. Feel like you're running on fumes. And maybe even if you're totally honest, you feel as though it's not worth it. You're this close to just doing away with it, giving up. Can I, can I speak to you based on our text this morning? Maybe the, maybe the reason that you feel like you're losing the fight is because you're fighting on your own. Maybe the reason that you feel like you're exhausted all your resources and you feel like you're running on fumes, maybe the reason the engine is sputtering is because you've got the wrong gas in it. And sure, it'll start up. It, it'll, it'll run for a minute and you'll feel good and feel like, oh man, it's humming along, we're good. And then it, and it sputters out. That's so what do you do? You just start it up again. You, you hit, the, hit the ignition again. It starts up again and runs for a little while and then it sputters out again. And eventually that fuel begins to work its way through the engine to the point that it eventually does some real damage. You're talking about replacements, talking about expensive costs, all because the wrong gas is in the tank. Maybe the secret to victory is choosing to lose the right battle. Maybe that when we give up on trying on our own, we surrender our own efforts as if we could do anything to fix ourselves. When we choose to lose the game the enemy wants us to play, that's how we win. In all honesty, the, the enemy would love for you to keep trying. He would. He'd love for you and I to keep working at it. Just try harder and do better because he knows that we're not built for it. He knows that we don't understand how to do that. He knows that in and of yourself, myself, we are not strong enough to win on our own, but he'd love for you to keep trying because he knows what he's banking on is that eventually you and I will become so worn out with this thing that we'll give it up. That we, we tried and we've tried and we've tried. We've worked and we've worked and we've worked and it's still come up empty. The engine still stalls out. And he'd love for you to stay right there because eventually you'll decide it's not worth it. And in doing so, you will forfeit not only what God could do in you, but what God could do through you. He's playing the long game. He's okay with you trying harder and doing better. If you hear nothing else this morning, friends, the central point of our text this morning is that the spirit of the living God offers you a way out. Offers you a different source, a different fuel. But that only happens if you're willing to siphon out the other stuff. You've got to drain the tank of what's in it now in order to be filled up. What's in you has got to go. And you can be filled up with the very thing that you were intended to run on. That vehicle in the shop at Buckhead Creek was never intended to run on diesel, and I found out the hard way. 
But the reality is, once we drained the tank, got it all figured out, cleaned it out, and put the, the new fuel in it, I think it's still humming today, 10 years later. Because we got the right source in it. The, the whole point of the gospel, friends, is we couldn't fix it on our own, and yet so many of us, post our interaction and encounter with Jesus, still think it's up to us. That, that somehow the game shifted. We, we admitted at a moment of, of salvation, a moment of surrender, that we couldn't do it on our own, and we've been trying ever since. And Paul is saying, hey, this, this thing you're, you're doing of this battle, it's only one, one way. And that's only one, not through trying harder and doing better, by, but by claiming the victory that Jesus has already won. And so I understand the tension in the room. All of that's pretty ethereal. It's all theological, theoretical. It's hard to put, as my grandmother would say, shoe leather on it. And so what does that mean? What, what does that look like? In John chapter 21, you don't have to turn there, but in John 21, there's a moment that Jesus has that I've, I've, I've read before in a different message a while back that used, uh, it just was super impactful for me. And I've never preached a text on, uh, or preached on that text entirely, but it just comes up often in this conversation. John chapter 21, Jesus has this moment with the disciples after his resurrection. And he says, it says this in verse two, it says, Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, Zebedee's sons, and two others of the disciples were together. And as predictable, uh, Simon Peter says, I'm going fishing. And Tommy Campsey said, amen. <clears throat> and they said, we're coming with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And when daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not know it was him. And he said, friends, you don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. Cast it on the right side of the boat, he told them, and you'll find some. And so they did, and they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. The disciple, the one Jesus loved, you have to understand this was written by John, he's talking about himself. Um, the one Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. Since they were not far from land, about 100 yards away, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish, don't miss it, already lying on it. Jesus has prepared a fire. He's already put dinner on the stove, food on the stove in preparation for their arrival. And then he says these words in verse 12, very beautifully, very simply. He says, come and have breakfast with me. What happened here? Jesus has radically changed the lives of his disciples through his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and they had seen him. And what was their response? To go back to doing exactly what they'd been doing before. Even though they had experienced the full power of God, they had seen it in real time and in real life, even though they had seen the miracles, even though they had firsthand knowledge of what Jesus' mercy and grace could do, even though they had seen and heard and done and felt and experienced all of that, the moment that they were left alone, they just returned back to what they knew. And so Jesus goes and 
meets him at the sea. By the way, it's no coincidence that Jesus knew where to find them. Because he knew where they would go. He knew how difficult it would be to trust something or someone that you couldn't see. He knew their propensity, their tendency, their temptation to go right back to the former way of life. And so he calls out to him and he invites him to the shore and there sitting on the fire was the very thing they had worked all night for. The very thing they had toiled in the water for hours over. Jesus simply says, I have what you're looking for. I will sustain you. I will feed you. Run your engine on me. Dock the boat, drop your gear, and come sit down for a while. Friends, this daily battle that we know as life is coming for us either way. But the encouragement today is that we don't fight alone. When we stay connected to and close to Jesus, when we're disciplined and intentional about spending time with him, abiding in him, We believe Jesus' words when he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. When we make that effort, that attempt, that that conscious decision to start the engine with the fuel of Jesus, let the spirit of God be what sustains us. That's where we find life. That's how we win. Oh, that we could be known, friends, as a church full of people who run their engine on Jesus. Think about the impact. Think about what God could do in this place, what God could do in this region, in this community. If people driving down the street past the building and go, man, I don't know what's going on in there, but they got something. God's doing something there. That it would be so palpable that people would feel it from the road. And there's something there. Oh, that God would be able to use us to that extent when we choose to not live according to the flesh, but also choose to to walk in the spirit. D.L. Moody said it this way, the world has yet to see what God can do with someone who is fully committed to him. It's never happened. The only time it did, uh, the savior of the world showed up. The world is yet to see what's possible, what God can do with someone who is fully committed to him. Oh, friends, that it would be true that you and I as the individuals that make up the church, the collection together would say, you know what, not my power, but your power. Not my fight, but your fight. Not my victory, but your victory. There's a whole lot of rest there for you, friends. There's a whole lot of rest. And maybe, just maybe, winning the battle is found in losing. By setting the gear down, putting the fight away, and having breakfast with Jesus. You know, you often don't think about sharing something with somebody like a tweet or an email or sending them a sermon or sending them a podcast. You don't often think of that as missions, but it is. 
it's not that you have to send it to the whole world or post every single thing we do at Clearview on your feed. But if, if you've heard a sermon or if you've listened to a podcast, think through your life. I mean, God, who needs to hear this? Sometimes it, it, it doesn't need to go on your Facebook page. Sometimes it needs to go on your Twitter. But sometimes just a simple text to one person can make all the difference in the world is sending them the Word of God in real time. Share it. You'd be surprised how far it goes.